Well, I want to welcome the first through sixth graders here again this morning during the summer. We take a break from Sunday school and we welcome the first through sixth graders among us. Now, the way it works, if you're a first through sixth grader, is uh, I'm going to open the Bible and try my very best to explain it. And what you'll see all through the room is a bunch of adults who really love God and really want to hear from God's word. So they'll have their Bibles open. So I want to encourage you to do that too. As we go along through this story here, it's going to be from Exodus chapter 17. So I encourage you to join me there, have a Bible open. And there's all kinds of different ways to take notes. Sometimes people draw pictures to take notes. Sometimes people write notes in the margin of their Bible so that when they come back to this passage a few years later, uh, they'll remember some of the things that they learned here today. Some people even bring little notebooks to church and they'll write some of their sermon notes there or all over their bulletin and things like that. So you can do that too. And this story is a very interesting story here in Exodus chapter 17. So I'd encourage you, if you'd like to, to draw a picture of what Moses does in this passage. And if you want to show that to me afterward, I would love to see it. So this morning, we are in Exodus chapter 17, continuing our series through Exodus so that we don't have a total mutiny here, uh, as we almost did last week. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at the very unusual story of Moses raising his hands in battle. Now, this is right between Egypt and Mount Sinai, so we're right again toward the very beginning of the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. This is just a little while, a few weeks, a couple of months after Passover. So please join me in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. It's just a paragraph. We're going to look through it verse by verse here, and I'm going to make a couple of comments as we go, and then we'll draw out three implications for our lives today. Now, what's going to happen in this paragraph is they'll run into an enemy of God named Amalek, and they're going to end up going to war with Amalek or the Amalekites. The Amalekites are going to be a problem for the Israelites for hundreds of years. It won't be until King David that the Amalekites are finally totally defeated. So this would be the first of many battles that the Israelites are going to fight against Amalek. Verse 8 of Exodus 17. Then Amalek came out and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out to fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Take a break here for a second. I think this is very interesting because up to this point, God has been doing all the fighting. If you think about it, uh, Israel has had a bunch of enemies and God has done all the fighting. He usually uses nature. He you know, used the Red Sea and totally destroyed the Egyptians and so on. And so God has, through 10 plagues and all kinds of different ways, defeated his enemies. And now all of a sudden, things are changing a little bit and they are asked to pick up a sword and fight for themselves. And I think the transition here that happens between that early stage of God doing all the fighting for them and them kind of watching it happen versus God asking them to pick up a sword and yet God's still in control, I think this is a very interesting tension that we may not think about, but it's a major change for them, probably raised a bunch of theological questions, raised a lot of questions, how shall we then live type questions if this change is happening. So we'll play with that here in just a minute. Verse 11, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him 
And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, that's a weird story, don't you think? That's just an unusual story. So Moses is out there, and as long as his hands are up, then the people were winning in battle. He's way up on kind of a top of a, a cliff or something. Everybody can see him. And as long as his hands are up, the people of Israel won their battle. But if you've ever tried to keep your hands over your head for a long time, I had to do that once holding a cabinet for my brother-in-law while he was trying to put it in. And, you know, so I started to do this kind of business and stuff. And that happens even when nothing is in your hands. You just can't hold your hands up for as long as you might think. And so eventually uh, Aaron and her had to come along and hold up his hand. So kind of a funny kind of a funny story is all these old men on the top of this thing trying to keep their hands up and uh, and the Israelites down uh, down in the valley there uh, fighting the battle. So when his hands went down, they were losing. When his hands were up, they were winning. And it's hard uh, to know exactly why. This is the case. Why did Moses have to hold up his hands? And this paragraph doesn't explain why. What, what even was he doing? And the assumption a lot of times is that he was praying, but it doesn't say that he was praying. It says that he had his hands up. Uh, it doesn't explain why. And this situation is not repeated anywhere else in the Bible. You don't see other situations where when the hands are up, such and such happened when they were down. So there's a one-time deal that isn't really explained. So we have to kind of figure out here what is the deal with the hands going up? What is going on? And I think the best explanation of the hands raised up is that Moses was demonstrating his dependence on God and also showing his blessing on the people. I think both of those things were happening. He was demonstrating his dependence on God. Raised hands show a, a, a need or a longing for God. Sometimes you'll see that in a worship service where people will raise their hands uh, during a certain song when they feel particularly moved and just desiring God. Psalm 143 says, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. So it's like a baby that's kind of roll, rolling out and reaching for a toy that it wants. It's that longing and it's that desire. And that battle turned for Israel when Moses' were, hands were up toward God. And even though they were fighting, the Israelites were fighting. They weren't just passive observers here, but they were still absolutely dependent on God. So I think the hands were showing that, look, even though you've got a sword, you're all sweaty and bloody and everything, this battle still depends on God. He has not left you as orphans, and you do not have the right to live outside his authority. Both of those things going on here, showing that this battle is dependent on God's blessing. So somebody might have kind of worried in the time leading up to the battle, maybe even in the middle of the battle, why don't we have another Red Sea moment here? How about God just come down with fire or open the earth or something and just destroy them? And they're like, well, I don't know, I don't know. He said to take up a sword. And so they need to be reassured on the one hand that God has not left them as orphans here. He hasn't just left them, okay, we got through that first part. Now you guys go and I'll meet you on the other side of the Sinai. That's not what is happening. And so these raised hands are reassuring them that God is still with us. But on the other side of that, these raised hands are showing them that, look, you do not have the right to do this however you want. You are dependent on God. God is the one that is fighting this battle, even though you're the one down there with the sword. So a very interesting lesson that we are still learning today. God is in control, and yet he asks us to do certain things. 
Why is that? How does that work? How do you philosophically explain that? And that question begins here in Exodus 17. But there's more than that. It's more than just demonstrating dependence on God. I think it's also showing Moses' blessing on the people. God had appointed Moses as the leader of these people. And it's interesting that so many stories before and after this little paragraph, so many stories before and after this little paragraph are about people not trusting Moses as leader, right? I mean, that's the, pretty much a whole generation. These people here never actually learn the lesson that they need to follow and obey Moses. There was complaining, insubordination, second-guessing galore, as uh, all the way through Moses' life. But here, you notice in verse 10, it's a really unusual statement, really unusual thing here in verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him. You don't read that very often about Moses. Moses says, here's what we're going to do. And everyone's like, how come? It was better over there. Why can't we go over here? And that kind of a thing. But verse 10 is just one. This is a first. Verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him. Now, if a leader is standing above people, like literally standing above people with his hands up, it is a universal sign of blessing, almost as if he's putting his hands on them. And so it's a sign of approval. It's a sign of blessing. So a major lesson here in this little paragraph is learning to trust God by trusting Moses and obeying Moses. So a couple of things going on with the hands raised, demonstrating dependence on God and demonstrating Moses' blessing on the people. Okay, so then let's watch what happens. After the victory, they end up winning the victory, right around sundown, it sounds like. Then verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar And called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So two things there. First of all, God tells Moses to write this down. Write down what just happened. So sometimes people say the Old Testament is just a bunch of oral tradition stories that somebody came along hundreds or maybe a thousand years later and actually wrote them down. But the Bible says something very different. What we see in the Bible is people actually writing things down here right from the very beginning of the Exodus account. And so God tells him to write it down and he writes it down. He writes down this little story and he does that for future generations. It's not just for him. Because Moses was there, and he experienced all of this, and he saw it with his own two eyes. But he's supposed to tell Joshua, and Joshua tells his kids, and all these generations tell kids and kids and kids, until here we are many generations later, still telling this story. Because God did something awesome here, and he wanted people to remember what happened. And so it's for remembrance. Moses was supposed to write this down so that people would remember. Also, he builds an altar, presumably for maybe a few generations, that altar was there and it testified to what God had done there. So what God is doing in this moment is not just for Moses and not just for that generation of people, but he does this for many generations of people, including us, in order to teach us some theology, in order to tell us what he is like. So what do we learn from this little paragraph? What do we learn from all of this. And we don't want to turn this story into just an allegory about my amazing life. Like it's just one of Aesop's fables and we're looking for a neat little moral to the story at the end of this little allegory. We believe that God is communicating to us through this text. 
We believe that he has something to say to us through this text. And so there are some questions that we can ask of this text that help us to figure out what God is communicating. It's not just, an, it's not just a fable that we look for a moral for. You know, what are the battles in your life? Trust in God for them. It's probably a lot more interesting than that if we can learn how to interpret the Bible a little better. And so there are a couple of questions that we ask of Old Testament narrative, this genre that we see throughout uh, the Old Testament. Those questions are, what is this? paragraph teach me about god and then if those things are true how shall i act toward god so we're going to look at those questions this morning we're going to learn three things about god from this passage what do we learn about god and how shall we act toward god and the first thing that i think we learn about god from this paragraph is that god's plan is rock solid god has a rock solid promise plan Nothing can stop God's plan. Well, now, what is God's plan? And he's told us in early Exodus, uh, the plan is to bring out his people so that they can worship him. And this plan has to do with a safe and abundant land that had been promised to Abraham's descendants. That's the plan. It's bringing the people out of Egypt through the Sinai Peninsula into the promised land where they will be safe and live in this abundant, flowing with milk and honey type of land with God dwelling in the midst of them. That's the plan. And it is going to happen. And you cannot stop God from doing whatever he wants to do. The apostle Peter, a couple thousand years later, the apostle people, uh, Peter understood this. He had been criticized for eating with Gentiles in that story of Cornelius. And so he goes and he's a little nervous about it. He's a Jew and he hasn't ever eaten a pig or bacon or anything in his whole life. And all of a sudden he's surrounded by these Gentiles and presumably there's bacon flying all over the place and he doesn't know what to do. And eventually he's like, well, God said, and you know, this sort of thing. And so, but then he comes home and everyone's like, you were eating bacon, you know, and it wasn't just bacon, but you, you were eating with Gentiles. Like you were actually in the same room eating with Gentiles. And here's what Peter says in Acts chapter 11. He says, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? See, so Peter understood. Look, if this is what God wants, then who am I? Who am I to stand in God's way? You don't stand in God's way. If God's going to do something, you don't get in the way of that. Nothing can stand in God's way. Well, Amalek here in Exodus 17 gets in the way. So Amalek dies. Pharaoh learned that lesson the hard way also. God has a plan. He's going to get this plan done. And you do not get in the way of God's plan. Proverbs twenty-one thirty: no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Isaiah forty-three thirteen: also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? So this little paragraph here in Exodus 17 tells us the tale of Amalek fighting against God. See, that's the issue here. Amalek is going up against God. And the unexpected thing here is that God's people are getting involved with this fight. Because again, we've seen in previous paragraphs, previous chapters, God pretty much takes care of this himself. And the people just kind of sit there and they're watching it happen. They're watching God do it. And all of a sudden he says, all right, we're going to do a new thing here. I got another enemy here, Amalek. Don't worry about it. Small thing. Pick up your sword. Huh? Whoa. Like what about Nate? Couldn't you find a cloud or something? Or what about a, I don't know, a tornado or something like what about? But no, pick up your sword. That was 
the instruction. So Moses raised up his arms and everybody learned that God is the one that makes a difference between winning and losing. This is his battle, but they're responsible for picking up the sword. Now, if this is true about God, that God gets whatever he wants, right? So that's what we're learning here, that God's plan is a rock solid promise. Now, if that's true, how shall I act toward God? It's the second question. That's true about God. How shall we act toward God? And the answer, I think, is obedient confidence. We ought to be obediently confident in God. Obedience, meaning carefully doing what God asks, especially when things are confusing and scary. So Moses says to Joshua, they're watching this enemy come on them, and everybody's probably freaking out, going, whoa, there's an enemy, and what are we going to do? And Moses says to Joshua, all right, what I want you to do is find a whole bunch of guys that look like they can fight, and I want you to go fight those guys. And Joshua says, okay, and, and, and he did it. He did it. A lot of, there's a lot of confidence, and there's a lot of obedience that's going on there. And so obedience is carefully doing what God asks, especially when things are confusing and scary. Okay, so it's easy to obey God when things are simple and easy and all laid out and you can see all the options and there's one very obvious one, so okay, I'm going to do that. But it's when the wheels come off, it's when things are scary, it's when things are confusing that we have to go, all right, now what exactly does this passage say? And you've probably done that. You've looked at a passage of scripture and you know that it applies to a certain situation and so you read it slowly like a first grader going, what about that word and what about this word? Praying through each word, knowing, okay, I gotta be really careful here because this is a rough situation. This is a confusing situation. So I have to be really careful about doing exactly what God tells me to do in this situation. So obedience and also confidence. Obediently confident. That confidence is believing that God's promises are actually rock solid. And God works all things for good. And God is all powerful. And God knows. And God sees. And God cares. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, that phrase there, do not lean on your own understanding, the assumption is that your own understanding, your own interpretation of a scenario, your own psychological analysis of a situation is not going to correspond with what God is telling you to do in his scripture. So don't lean on your own understanding when the wheels come off. Focus on what the word of God says and do it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So the Israelites were probably thinking, why doesn't God just fight this battle himself like he's always done? Why do I need to get sweaty and bloody? Maybe my son is going to die in this battle. And so how can that bring glory to why would God do that and so on and all of this? And you know what? God doesn't answer that question. He says, go, get up. Here's what the plan is. Get on board with this plan. So then what happens on the battlefield? There's a direct connection between dependence on God and military success, which we see through the hands. Their life depends on their dependence. You see that? Their life. So that is a metaphor there. Their very life in that battle depends on their dependence on God. And that's going to apply to every area of their life, not just Amalek. 
And that's hard. That is hard. And unfortunately, this particular generation of Israelites didn't learn that lesson. But for people who push through the confusion to a simple obedience, pushing through all of the all of the stuff to a simple obedience in God. What does God tell me to do right now? People who push through to a simple obedience. Here's the result. Psalm 33, 21. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. So God's plan is a rock solid promise. Therefore, we can live with obedient confidence that his plans will not fail and we've got to follow him carefully. Sometimes God does just fix things for us and there's probably millions and billions of scenarios like that that we don't even recognize. Sometimes God just fixes stuff, but sometimes he makes us work and sometimes our lives, we can go through phases, weeks, months, years, whole relationships where it feels like we're doing a lot of the work here. And the key thing in those scenarios is obedient confidence. Do what he says. Remember his promises. And somehow, on the other side of all this, we will have rest. Now, another piece of theology that we learn from this little paragraph, this battle against Amalek and the weird story with the hands and everything, another piece of theology. What do we learn about God? Therefore, how shall we act toward God? Another thing that we learn about God is that God orders our lives under good leaders. So God, this is just so interesting. God was leading the people through a pillar of fire, right? We saw that a couple of chapters ago. He's leading the people with this big pillar of sand and fire and so on. Wherever the cloud went, the people went. But he also led them with Moses. Have you ever thought about why Moses was necessary? Why did they need to have Moses? What was his point? He's like this middleman. Why not just the cloud speaks? The cloud says, come this way, and then all of them just kind of go, why not just follow the cloud? The war against Amalek here depends on Moses' direction, go, find some dudes, pick up your swords, go. So this military success here is depending on Moses' direction and then his blessing on the people. But why? Why do we need leaders why not just me and the Bible and the Holy Spirit? Because frankly, that would be easier in some scenarios, right? It sounds nicer. It's just me and Jesus making decisions together. Me and my buddy Jesus. We'll just figure it out. I don't need anybody to explain this. I'm going to open it up. I don't even need notes on the bottom of the page, man. I'm just going to Holy Spirit and me figure this out on our own. Why do we need leaders? What was the point of Moses? You see, God could have spoken just from the cloud and eliminated the middleman. I think a couple of reasons here. First of all, it seems that Moses was necessary because Moses shows us the kind of mediator that Christ would be. In the same way that King David shows us the kind of king that Christ would be. Except, of course, Jesus is not sinful, and so he was a better mediator than Moses, a better prophet than Moses, a better king than than David, and so on. But Moses is showing us the kind of mediator that Christ would be. He, he is a type of Christ, to use a literary term. He's a type of Christ. 
He's acting like Christ so that in the future, when Jesus comes, we're like, oh, okay, I, I see that. And you're, you're kind of telling us what Jesus would be like way back there in the way that Moses is acting. But more fundamentally than that, I think there's another reason that Moses was necessary. And that is because God created humanity in a hierarchical order. That's how he made us to thrive. It happens in family. It happens in church. It happens in government. And we're going to see this really intensely in the next week when we look at the story of Jethro. Uh, Moses' father-in-law comes and he helps Moses to diffuse his leadership into actually four layers of leadership because Moses is overwhelmed trying to figure out disputes and so on. And so Jethro says, what are you doing all your time doing this? Like you... You need to be the one to figure out the really hard cases. You need to put guys in charge of thousands, in charge of hundreds, in charge of fifties, in charge of tens. And then you're on top of that. So under Moses, you've got four layers of leadership in order to take care of the people. And, you know, things got a little bit better for Moses so that all day long he didn't have people sort of knocking on his tent door saying, he won't give me my hummus and he said he would or whatever so who knows is like Jethro's like you don't need to worry about the hummus disputes right let somebody else figure that out (laughs) and you deal with the really bad ones you see God created family and church and government to thrive inside a hierarchical order and we see that beginning in Eden and so this isn't just a result of the fall this is part of what it is to be human And when people fail to lead well, or when people fail to submit well, then we have huge problems in relationship and in community. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And the phrase there, as those who will have to give an account, it needs to be clear that they need to give an account to God. Proverbs 5, 13 and 14 says, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. You know, people tend to resent leaders, which is why Moses is surrounded by complaining and insubordination his entire life. This is one of the few paragraphs where we see Moses actually respected. And I, I was thinking about it last night. I think Moses is probably the loneliest character in the Bible. And how ironic, because he's surrounded by over a million people, and yet he seems to me to be the loneliest character in the Bible. Because all through the whole account of Moses, you see him scrambling around trying to pray to God to stop punishing the people for treating him like crud. It's really an amazing story that over and over again, he's praying for the very people that have betrayed him, rebelled against him, and that are so disastrous. At one point, God says, look, we're going to start over. I'm going to flame broil all these people and make a whole new group out of you. And Moses says, no, think about what that'll do to your reputation among the nations. This interesting back and forth that goes on between Moses and God, because Moses actually loves these people that are treating him so horribly. Um, He loves God, he loves the people, and he just gets crushed over and over and over. And nobody ever sees it except God and us long after he's dead. So Moses shows us a little bit of what Jesus is like, shepherding and suffering and shepherding and suffering. 
And Moses shows us how groups of people are designed to thrive under God, underneath qualified good leaders. And those two things are related, of course. We learn to submit to Christ by submitting to earthly leaders. And, and so one theological lesson in this passage is that God puts us under leadership on purpose. That's part of what it means to be a human being. And our peace depends on whether or not we submit. And like Israel, we bring all kinds of heaps of trouble into our lives by finding a thousand excuses to complain and usurp. And so leaders who suffer over such people can take comfort in watching Moses scramble around trying to keep things together while everyone else seems bent on doing whatever is right in their own eyes. So God orders our lives under good leaders. How shall we act toward God then when God puts us into leadership positions? Stick your neck out there. Do what God calls you to do as a leader a lot of leaders end up deciding, look, it is too painful to do this because every time I stick my neck out here, somebody gets upset. And so the way I'm going to respond to that is basically not lead. And other leaders decide to clamp down saying, no, you must not have heard me. And so we're going to create a military environment here so that we can get this in order. And yet the kind of leader that God is looking for is a gracious leader that just gets crushed over and over again. Um, so that that's just, there's no way around that. And if God has put you in a leadership position, you've got to stick your neck out there and do it because God has put you in that position as a type of Christ yourself in the family, in the church, maybe in the government, whatever it may be. So how then shall we act toward God, be the leader that God has called you to be, and then also submit to the leaders that God has put over you? I mean, unless they're evil, if there's an abundant amount of ungodliness, then of course that raises a lot of very ethical dilemmas, a, a tough ethical dilemmas. We need to think that through. How do you submit How, as a child? You know, your parents are put over you. You're supposed to honor your f father and mother. Well, what if your father and mother are fools? What do you do if they're ungodly disasters of people? How do you honor them? And so that'll take some time to think through and we can talk through that and so on. Um, but if God has put you in a position uh, underneath others, you need to learn how to submit. You need to learn how to give honor and submission. And when we fail to lead and when we fail to submit and we create a lot of trouble in our lives and we watch this uh, tragedy of this generation of Israelites that never learned that lesson and the result of that is that the whole generation of them were buried in the desert. It should have been a couple months and they're in the promised land, but they could not learn this lesson and the result is that all of them died in the, in the desert. One more thing I think we learn about God. I'll do this one a little more briefly. And that is that God teaches theology through human events. God teaches theology through human events. God teaches us how to live through the events of our lives. Moses, at the end of the story, writes down the story for future generations, and he built an altar for future generations. There was an event that occurred that taught some theology about God, and the idea here is that future generations can read and see and hear what had happened there and learn some things about God, and then ask the question, how then shall I act toward a God who does stuff like this? The implication is that God wants us to hear this story about Amalek and then learn some important things that should change our lives. God teaches important theological truths through human events. 
So Moses wrote down this story, and presumably what he wrote there became the source material for Exodus when it was eventually compiled together. And so we respond to this particular lesson that God speaks through the events of our lives. We respond to this by reading this story and stories like it and learning from them. Uh, That seems fairly obvious. Let's consider an application that may not be as obvious. We might also follow Moses' example here by writing down our own stories and telling our own stories about what God has done. Somebody asked me a few days ago, what are some of the most what are some of the books that have influenced you the most? And so the one that popped to my mind as probably top two or three was the biography of Jim Elliot. I read it when I was about twenty years old, uh, Shadow of the Almighty. A man was mentoring me at the time. I was uh, interacting with girls in a st- stupid way, and he said, "You need to read this book." And the funny thing is that he said, "When I was your age, I was treating girls in a stupid way, and the guy mentored me." gave me this book. So it was kind of a generational passing down of uh, mentoring. So I would consider Jim Elliot to be one of my major mentors, uh, even though he died long before I was born. Uh, But he wrote down his life. He kept a journal. He wrote down his life, and he talked about the way that God was leading him and different lessons that he learned along the way. And eventually, after he was martyred uh, as a missionary, his wife compiled his uh, journal and filled it in with some of the background material. And you can, you too can read that story. It's in our library and in the bookstore, and I highly recommend that. But my point here is that, you know what? It's Father's Day, and fathers might want to consider doing something like Moses or like Jim Elliot did, writing and recording a tale of God acting in your life. You might think, well, I'm not Jim Elliot, and I'm not Moses. Well, that's true. Neither am I. But God is a great and awesome God, and God acts through the events of our lives. And we learn very well if we're paying attention, if we're listening, we learn some really interesting and important things through the events of our lives. So write down some of these or record yourself if you don't want to write them down or gather the family around the table, whatever it may be, and and leave behind a testimony so that your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren can know God better as a result of you knowing God through the events of your lives. And so Jerry read earlier from 1 Chronicles, this was David, and David said, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. And we find a lot of those in the Bible, but we find a lot of those just in our own timelines. And David goes on later in the psalm. He says, sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be held in awe above all gods. So to conclude, three things that we learn about God from this little story with the hands being raised and the battle against Amalek. Three things that we learn from this paragraph. God's plan is a rock-solid promise. Therefore, live with obedient confidence in God, especially when times are confusing and scary. Second, God orders our lives under good leaders. Therefore, lead well and submit well. Or you may find yourself wandering for decades in a terrible wilderness. Three, God teaches theology through the events of our lives. Therefore, read the Bible 
these stories that have been collected for the purpose of teaching us about God. Read the Bible and celebrate these great acts of God and also read Christian biographies and write your own biography. You are also a Christian and God is also treating you like a child, disciplining you through the events of your lives and teaching you important things. So write those things down so that future generations may know about our great God. We do have 10,000 reasons to praise God. We're going to sing that song here in a minute. We have 10,000 reasons to praise God. And let's, let's get better at remembering uh, those things. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, you are a great and awesome God. You are all-powerful. You are mighty. You have an awesome plan. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live under your ways all the days of our lives. Help us to trust you and love you more. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.